Hello, my name is Paul Rouse and you are listening to Sport and Ireland, A History. In the spring and early summer of 2020, the playing of organised sporting competitions in Ireland and across most of the world was effectively suspended due to COVID. During those months, that is to say between March and June 2020, I recorded the weekly lectures of my long-running module, Sport and Ireland, A History, which I had taught in UCD for many years. The recordings were undertaken as a series of interviews with Joe Malloy, the award-winning presenter of Off the Ball on News Talk FM in Ireland, and were broadcast live on radio. The recordings are available here now, courtesy of Off the Ball, and I would like to thank Joe Malloy and Ger Gilroy for facilitating this series and for making it available on History Hub. History Hub is the UCD School of History's public history website. The site has hundreds of podcasts and posts covering everything from medieval to modern history, Irish and international. The site can be found at historyhub.ie. This episode of Sport in Ireland, a history, is episode 8. And in it, we will discuss the history of women's presence in sport, a history in which women were denounced, belittled and trivialised. Now we're continuing our History of Sports series. We have Professor Paul Rouse with us. Afternoon, good evening. Hey Joe, how are you? Very well. We have been talking about the history of sport in Ireland, in the UK, and we are about seven weeks into this expedition now, and we haven't talked much about women. No, um, we have hardly talked about women at all, and that is a reflection of both the construction of the modern sporting world in terms of its gender aspect and it's a construction of the place of women in society while that world was being constructed in the second half of the 19th century. This is uh, a story of discrimination, but it's also a, a story of people being almost unable to conceive of women having a place in the modern sporting world. This was a world that was constructed by men for men and women were very much uh, on the margins of this world as it was constructed in the in the late 19th century. What point in history do you want to pick this thing up in? Well, we should probably focus on the period where modern sporting organisations were built, but it's, I think we should note that true history um, in the medieval and early modern times, there, were, there was evidence of women playing sports. So, for example, women hunted and hunted liberally and continued to hunt uh, in the 18th and 19th century. And there were element. There were there were um, there. There's a lot of evidence of women attending sporting events of various natures. So, for example, there was a match in Kildare in 1792, a football match in 1792, in which there was a court case afterwards featuring uh, a local Kildare woman who, uh, in the course of uh, a sport, a football match, ran onto the field in this course of a row in which obviously one of her family members or loved one was was involved, and she glassed. Um, one of the players, so which probably would have put her onto Kildare's Mount Rushmore, but she, 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 um, she. So this is evidence of of women around things. But when you then come to the nineteenth century and the construction of modern sporting organisations, you have to look at the world in general. This is a time when, even though men were being afforded the vote in many more numbers than previously, women didn't have the vote. Women's access to the professions was entirely. Uh, limited before the First World War, there were no female barristers, no female solicitors, very, very few female doctors, women entirely underrepresented in, in, 
um, in teaching, in the civil service, across all of those areas, women are very much second-class citizens within society. And indeed, even when it comes to education, uh, well, it's primary education, fine, to, but secondary education just collapses, uh, collapsed when it came to, to female experience. So this was, this was uh, a time when the place of women in society was absolutely res reflected in its place in sport, by, by women's place in sport. If we take the vote maybe as a barometer of some kind of standing in society, at what point did all men over the age of 18 or 21 have the right to vote? There was an act introduced in London in 1918, which was the Representation of the People's Act, which allowed men uh, over 18 the right to vote, but women over 30 were finally given the right to vote. So you had to be, you were considered not to be capable as a woman of voting if you were in your 20s. So that's 1918, it took a further 10 years 1928 before that went down to, to equivalent to it meant. So this is a time when you're looking at absolute discrimination. But the story of the 19th century was the story of um, the spread of the vote, voting rights of men through a series of representation acts in the 19th century, slowly, grudgingly uh, afforded first in local elections and then in general elections. And that's part of the general change in society born of industrialization and urbanization and those changes that we've spoken about previously. Do you want to chart the suffragette movement? Yeah, the suffragette movement is really, really interesting and it, it has a role in sport in, in all of this. So um, if you look in Ireland, you, you have women such as Anna Haslam, who founded in 1876 the Dublin women's suffrage uh, movement. And there were a small few breakthroughs for that suffrage movement. So, for example, the Local Government Act of 1898 allowed women to vote in local government elections. That was the same decade, by the way, in which women were first given the vote in places like New Zealand or in Australia just around 1900. But it was really in the first years of the 20th century, that is after 1900, that the suffrage movement really gathered momentum and the idea that women should have the vote. Hmm. So in October 1903, for example, the Women's Social and Political Union was founded and held its inaugural meeting in England and this spread into Ireland and women began chaining themselves to railings and began to smash windows in, in institutions and stage political protests as part of that. And by 1911, people such as the Pankhursts were um, engaging in the first act of arson. They were beginning to burn down places and um, women in Ireland refused to fill out the census of 1911 because some women did because as an act of protest against the government because there were other militant suffrage, Irish suffragists then were put in prison as they were um, in England and uh, quite a number went on hunger strike during, uh, during, during these years. Okay, because when I think of the suffragette movement, funny, the sporting aspect is the one that lingers in the memory, 1913 and Emily Davison jumping in front of the horse. Yeah, so Emily, Emily Davison is, she was a fascinating person. She was an English suffragette for those people who don't know her. And in 1909, she wrote her favourite quotation, which was, rebellion against tyrants is obedience to God uh, on pieces of paper. And she tied them to rocks and threw them at the carriage of the then Chancellor of the Exchequer, David Lloyd George, as it, as it drove through English streets. By 1911, she came to believe that um, the suffrage movement needed an actual martyr to bring it the publicity that it needed. And then famously in 1911, she ran out uh, in front of the King's Horse during the Epsom Derby and grabbed the reins of the King's Horse and, and, and died. Her funeral was an it was it was an epic spectacle 
what happened afterwards and, every, and what flowed from that, both in terms of people were repulsed by what she did, and people are utterly offended by it, and others who were inspired by it. Um, so this is, it's a very singular example of women using sport mm. to, make a, 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 to make a political point about their position in, in society. And you would always have, almost have imagined that sport should have been a perfect place for women to demonstrate their capacities and that it should have been an opportunity to, to kind of reinvent women's place in society and not just as a vehicle for dramatic gestures. Mm. And it was up to a point, but only to a point, because the Victorian world was, was also, it was a profoundly male world in terms of how people were supposed to be and supposed to behave. And you looked at a great example of this. You go back a hundred years ago and there are, there are um, uh, gyms all over Ireland and there is a sale of gym making or gym equipment through newspapers. So there's the sale of special potions that you can buy to build your muscles and special uh, chest expanders that you can buy to, to kind of make yourself strong. And the image that's cultivated is of a man who is brave and, and um, sport is a great vehicle for showing your bravery and to show mm. your masculinity and to show those well-toned muscles. And you can see the letters pages of newspapers filled with anxious men writing about, you know, I'm, I'm actually not particularly strong. How can I get stronger? Uh, how can I find my place in this world? So to understand the, the place of women in sport, you also have to understand the place of men and the imagery around men in, in, in that sporting world. Okay. And just to round up the suffragette journey to a point, World War I is crucial? World War I was crucial. The, the, it was crucial because of the number of men who went to, to, work in, uh, to, went to fight at the front and how that changed the nature of women's position in society for those years while, while men was away. Now, we have to be really careful here not to overstate the extent to which things changed during those periods and the fact and the manner in which things changed back but after 1914 to 1918 for example it became something in time where it was conceivable that women would actually work in banks behind bank counters as bank tellers something which was unheard of essentially in Ireland before before the great war and this so you get a changing scenario in in what women are perceived to be able to do while men are away at war but you have to be very careful not to imagine that it was utterly transformative. Okay, but so World War I might be the first time, for instance, we would have had female bank tellers. Yeah, and it's after World War I because of like wars, as we're seeing now with pandemics, wars change society and how things can, th- things can evolve. And once that change is made and once people can demonstrate the capacity to do something, mm-hmm. you can't unsee that. It's no longer sustainable to posit a position that, well, listen, that person just isn't able to do that. And so you get the change in the law after the war then where women are allowed to become solicitors and, and, and to practice in that way, way. So you get a general opening up of, of society. So 1918, women, under, women over 30 rather can vote and it's another yes. 10 years then 
before that's extended to the same age qualification as men. So 1928, which is, is quite something. Does that apply to Ireland as well? Like when, when, yeah. we obviously stopped running in total tandem with the UK. At a certain we stopped, we stopped running in tandem. And, and when it comes to, when it comes to Ireland, you, you must remember that in, in these islands, the first government minister so appointed was Countess Markovich. The first, she was the first MP elected to the house of commons as it was then granted. She took her place in the, in Dáil Éireann and she became, she became a minister. But, in tandem with that beginning to open up here, you have to see the legislation that was being introduced in the 20s and the 30s in Ireland, which were an impediment to women taking a wider place in, 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 in Irish society and the, the, the special place afforded to women through the constitution of 1937 and the removal of certain what were considered to be civil liberties and a general, um, a general failure to advance any sense of equality around um, women's position, women's rights and women's position in society uh, in the 20s, 30s and beyond that through the, through the decades afterwards. Okay. We'll get on to the reasons uh, for why women maybe didn't play sport much in a moment, scientific beliefs, uh, fashionable beliefs and, and so on. Mm. But just give us a sense from, I don't know, say let's, let's pick it up somewhere around 1860s, 70s, when as we've discussed, there's an explosion in sport and the beginnings of organised sport were women playing sport in any real capacity then? Like, were, were there women football teams, rugby teams? What were we seeing? Oh, you asked the question about the 1860s. Let's ask it about the 1960s. In the 1960s, there are women playing a small amount of indoor football, as Lena Byrne has shown around Dundalk and in those areas. Mm. We're soccer, playing soccer there, but there are no women's soccer teams during the rounds. There is no women's Gaelic football team, no women's Gaelic football association until the 1970s. No proper women's rugby association until the end of the 1970s. So you get, a, it's, it's 100 years later, go back 100 years and no, the answer to this is really simply no. And if you look at the first athletic events that are held around Dublin in the 1860s and the 1870s, these are races between men, the jumping events are for men, the throwing events are for men. And what might be thrown in is a kind of like, like the mother's race at the school sports is a kind of almost like uh, a novelty event of Pretty women kind of, having yeah. a race for, for, uh, for, for, for a bonnet at okay. the end of it. So and, next, and next, pre-World pre War I, next to nothing, certainly. Well, it, it began to change in, in, the, in the 1880s and the 1890s because women began to play, through schools, began to play stick and ball games. So they began to play hockey. Uh, and there, there's an Irish ladies hockey union founded in the 1890s. And then, probably most importantly in an Irish sporting context in terms of women in this period was the foundation and the development of camogie from 1903, 1905, those, those years. But these are on the margins of, modern, of, of, of the modern sporting world. Okay. There are women playing bits of tennis and there are, there's the Irish Women's Tennis Championship and the Wimbledon Women's Tennis Championship, which, which Irish women win. And um, uh, an Irish woman, Mabel Cahill, won five US Opens. Um, uh, during these years in the 1890s. But you can't, you can't imagine that this is anything approaching equality. This yeah. is right out on the very margins right. in terms of numbers who are competing and its presence within the sporting world at the time. Right, okay. So it's not the rank and file of the population uh, competing. So I mentioned scientific beliefs and look, famously, even, you know, many, uh, Roger Bannister, it was believed a, a, a sub-four-minute mile might result in spontaneous uh, combustion at, yeah. a, at a certain point. So look, science has, has not been on, on top of this whole area uh, for quite some time. But when it came to women, 
this went beyond just uh, a belief that it was unladylike. There was a fear of real and serious damage to women's health if they participated in sport. Oh, much more than a fear. It was stated clearly that vital organs could be damaged by women's athletic activity and in particular the capacity of of women to give birth was said to have been potentially destroyed through excessive exercise and more than that uh, it was it was it was kind of argued that men and women had just different types of cells that um, and the women had a finite amount of energy and they shouldn't waste it on 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 sport now ideas are never held in a society uh, as a monolithic way. It's not just a thing that thing, everybody believes one thing. There were competing beliefs here. So yeah. that might have been set out by Hen- Her- Herbert Spencer in his famous book, The Principles of Biology from 1867. But other experts, including the first uh, woman to successfully compete the medical qualifying exams in Britain, Elizabeth Garrett Anderson, just said, look, this is, this is nonsense. She was an advocate of women's suffrage, an advocate of, of physician, and an advocate of women's opportunities in, in higher education. She was the first woman in England who was uh, elected as a mayor. And crucially, she argued that exercise was good for women's bodies and good for their minds. Right. Basically, the things that we all understand yeah. and accept to be true today. So is it possible to tell from this vantage point what the prevalent acceptance was? Oh, the prevailing was, was the male one because it suited the mores of society. It's where science and, and mores and culture wrap themselves in together. And it's a kind of a very convenient thing to believe when it fits the structure of the society in which it, 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 it finds itself. And particularly also when it fits into fashion. So if you look at the dictates of uh, Victorian fashion, that is that women were expected to you know, wear restrictive clothing. We've all seen the imagery in screens of these uh, long dresses, the ankle lengthens, corsets, etc. Women were, you know, you're expected to eat, to eat little, to take no exercise, to behave submissively. And all of these things were destructive of women's health. And it was fashionable at certain periods amongst affluent women even to aspire to, weak- to weakness. So the cherished body was one that was pale and thin and it was considered vulgar to have a robust fitness. Uh, is so presented through magazines and uh, and so on. And of course, the thing about fashion is that it, because people began to behave like that, people, women invariably fainted or invariably be, became ill at various parts. So this is almost seen as proof then yes. that the science is right. And it all fed into e- to each other. And, and of course, the very abstinence from activity made women more prone to, to illness. And of course, then women begin to accept or, or accept and believe in their own incapacity and their own inferiority. So it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Okay. And where does education start to make a real impact? You mentioned stick and ball games. That must start to create young women in their 20s who want to create their own lives, who have the intelligence and the wherewithal to look around and see some serious holes in what they're being told. As late as 1887, the chairman of the British Medical Association, who was kind of the governing uh, the kind of central leading body in, in when it comes to medicine in Britain talked about how important it was that women should be denied too much edu- education and other activities because of the overstrain that it would create and, and the fact that it would, again, damage the capacity to have healthy offspring. But people pushed against that. And before 1850, women's education was usually restricted to private schools, which gave a somewhat shallow education. But, and then they were finishing, they were a little more like they were glorified finishing school when it came down to it. And as these schools began to expand, um, 
insofar as there was exercise, it was calisthenics, which were basically rhythmic body exercises. There were developments in women's education from the 1850s and a greater number of women's schools opened up. In England, for example, there's the Cheltenham Ladies College from 1858 and other schools such as St. Leonard's from 1877 and Wickham Abbey from the 1880s. And sport was played in all of these elite English um, public schools. But to play sport, what they did was they reworked the ideology of the boys' public school. They never argued that girls were as physically capable as as boys and instead they stressed the moral value of of the games they said that you know it could teach you and i quote good temper under trying circumstances courage and determination to play up and do your best even in a losing game rapidity of thought of action self-reliance unselfishness and learning to sink individual um preferences for the common good yeah. and so none of these really challenged male self-imagery or male values mm. and they constructed a game of an alternative sporting world then around hockey lacrosse rounders and netball and if you know the kind of the the stories the novels of the english female schools and the films that were made are, around those they're, they're the sports that that were that were constructed there and what they were designed to do were to remove much of the physicality of, of, of boys' sport. So you keep activity and you increase activity as beliefs change, but you take out physical contact. Mm. We must have started to see women teachers on the rise then. What impact, if any, do we know did they have? It depended. There were, like, like the same as with male teachers, there were huge numbers of teachers who just don't like sport, not interested in it, and they're, they're there to teach and they're not there to, to engage in sport. And then, But there are women who, who love sport and they wanted to promote sport, but they could only do so largely within the constraints of the curriculum in their school and of the mores of wider society. So this mm. was really, really slow in changing. So hockey began to push its way, not just through the schools, but as people went out into the schools, out into the society and women's hockey clubs were founded. And that in turn led to the Irish Women's Hockey Association. And then it was crucial for Camogie because... Um, women began appearing in far greater number in secondary schools in Ireland by about 1900. Not, never huge numbers because very few people went to secondary school in Ireland after, in, in around 1900. Sure. But women began to appear now in teacher training colleges, in the universities and in the civil service from, 18, from 1900 onwards. And these independent women, as they saw themselves, sought out their own place in the world. And this kind of soft sport begin to play a part in shifting perceptions of what... Uh, a woman was was capable of doing. To take a brief uh, overview tangent for for a second, you know, it's, if we look at a modern situation, it's very interesting. Everybody's uh, looking at the Michael Jordan documentary at the moment, and he embodies all the uh, much celebrated male characteristics. He is aggressive. Frankly, he's a bully in many ways. He is all of those typical attributes, and that is very much celebrated in a male athlete. And even up in uh, twenty nineteen. Certainly after the ladies' football final, we had numerous players, we had a couple of players in the show saying that we need to change the rules here. We're not allowed to shoulder each other. Yeah, and if you remember, the ladies' yeah. football final last year was played in dire weather. And actually the ability to barge through was required and they were getting pinged for fouls. And even in Camogie now, they're allowing more tackling. You know, it's still a very different uh, sport and the players are crying out for more physicality. So those uh, values, those... Um, attributes we expect of both genders we still haven't fully shaken them off so i can imagine what, what it's like when we're going back a hundred years 
when we're talking about camogie. Yeah, and if you if you that's a really good point. If anybody who who's listening to this to this show or to this podcast who has ever been involved with a women's team or a girls team will understand just how competitive and just how physical uh, women are and that men are. It's to 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 seek to make the divide along gender grounds is nonsensical. But the rules and sporting culture and sporting structures have yet to catch up with that basic fact. And it is a reminder about how hard it is to change an institution once things get embedded into that institution and how hard it is, how slow society is to change in very many aspects when it comes to certain biases that are held by people and certain preconceived ideas that embed themselves in mm. people's minds and which they struggle, um, which they struggle to shift on from. In, in terms of giving people a sense of camogie, I know from your notes that by, say, 1904, there were, yeah. what, five camogie teams playing in a league in Dublin City? There were five camogie teams playing in a league in Dublin City. And it, within that league, you can see a thing where um, these are women who begin practicing, first of all, in the Phoenix Park in 1903. They travel up to the Phoenix Park on, uh, in trams. And they hide their hurlies under their coats for fear of the ridicule to which they were, uh, they would be exposed. And the backstory to this is the sense that there was never a question that women there would be women membership of the GEA in in eighty four, in eighty five, in eighty six almost. There was no suggestion that this would be an organisation. Women could go to matches, and all match reports talk about women being present along the sidelines. Mm -hmm. But the sidelines is where they were expected uh, to maintain, and. What changed was a group of women who were involved largely in the Gaelic League in Dublin, that is that movement that was founded in the 1890s to revive the Irish language as the spoken language of the majority of the people of the country. The women who were involved with this were, were, were in that league with men and you see branches like the Keating branch in Dublin which have brilliant hurling and Gaelic football teams and the women who are involved in that branch said, well, well why can't we play? We're, we're up here, we love these games, we watch these games, we want their own place. So they begin to gather in small numbers, um, determined to play hurling. But of course they can't call it hurling because that would be in the front of the men. They must design a different name for it. So the name of Camogie is in, imposed on it and the rules are amended, apparently to make it more suitable. So the hurlies are made smaller and lighter and so are the slitters. The, the pitch was shortened to stand between 60 yards in width or 60 and 100 yards in length and between 40 and 60 yards in width. The number of players on each team is at 12. Now that's partly in relation to the fact that the size of the pitch but it's also about the availability and willingness of uh, people to play and unique among the early rules was this deliberate stopping of the ball. You couldn't deliberately stop the ball with the skirt you were wearing so the skirts were all the way down to the ankles. Um, and the staging of these matches led to the founding of the Camogie Association, Common Camogie in 1905. And the game spread slowly around uh, Dublin, five or six clubs, down into Cork. But it also spread to areas where you would not consider Harling strongholds. So, for example, there's Camogie in Loud and in Monaghan and in Fermanagh and in parts of Antrim, which are not traditional Harling areas. So the game began to spread and it spread on that network of, of Gaelic League clubs yeah. um, and spread out from that. And it was, it was really, really interesting to see that they managed to do that, but they managed to do it only in a marginal way because the game retained, remained very, very small. Okay. It's, important, it's important, very few players. It's important though, the fact, very fact that it survived and that it made its way into the university. So there's the playing of an, of a, of an annual competition 
um, between Irish universities and you see the photos of those games and you can see the manner in which it's changing. So the skirts run higher up the legs now. The games become more physical. There are more people ringing the pitch to watch them play. It's clear that the play is dynamic from what's there. So slowly but surely, the game transformed itself and transformed the lives of the people who played it. Okay. Seeing as you mentioned clothing there, you know, even we still watch Camogie today and we see the skirts. So talk us about women and sport and clothing because that will tell us a lot, I suspect. Oh, yeah. It is still a a massive bugbear, I know, of players from the Camogie team that that, that I've got kids playing in and that that I'm involved in helping out with and the very fact that, that they wear... That, that they must wear a skirt as they're as as yeah. they're called around can wear shorts in a match. Is, even in, like Camogie since since nineteen oh oh five that territory the Camogie Association has been in effect. This is not a, a patriarchal forcing of the skirt on women. This is an organisation run by women. Effectively, I would have thought right through until the present day in the main. Oh, it, it, there were men hugely involved in running Camogie in the in the early years and continue to be strongly involved in it and involved you look at a lot of camogie teams they're mentored by men increasingly there are women involved in it but an awful lot of women's sport remains mentored by men and there it is it is changing and it has changed but it 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 needs to change more just as there should be more women involved in training men's and boys teams um but but the clothing issue i'm talking about i would have have thought they could dictate what they're wearing clothing issues but again this is a reflection this is this is a reflection of society for for many decades where where there are perceptions around what people should wear and people should not wear but of course the change in the last number of years in tennis for example and and the idea of companies getting involved and the selling of tennis merchandising particularly over the last 40 or 50 years Mm. has transformed women's clothing so it's i think it's i think it's uh, i think it's a much more it's a much different scenario now than it was even 30 years ago in, yeah. terms of, in terms of sports clothing. Is there, in the midst of all this, because I know tennis and croquet were other sports which yeah. began late 19th century and, and we've, we've charted the suffragette movement in tandem with this and we get a glimpse of camogie as an example. This all still, still feels very much on the margins. I mean, the ESRI, ESRI can tell me today exactly the percentage of women involved in sport. Uh, you probably don't have ESRI service no. available to you. Do we get a sense, is there a, a decade or two decades where there's something of a quantum leap in terms of participation? Yeah, and it's, it comes from the 1970s onwards and the development of sports right. from, from, sport from all programs. It's not that there weren't developments before that, but the, the big leap become with sport for all programs from the 1970s onwards. And if you look at the history of sport, and we'll talk about this maybe in, in another week, but if you look at the history of sport in independent Ireland, you didn't have major broad-based PE curriculum in schools until after the 1970s. You did not have facilities in the schools to develop these sports. And if you look at the sporting network of clubs, they were male. So you get exceptions to this, but broadly speaking, women were utterly discriminated against, and it's only the development of sport for all pro- programs, initially driven by the European Economic Community in the 1960s and 1970s, that you get broad-based determination for rooted in health uh, concerns, but also um, rooted in the idea of of, of the, for the greater good of society that more people should be involved in sports so the, and the state gets involved in that in a way that wasn't previously the case but that's from the 19 the 1970s but if you look previously there are 
like there's change happening all the time here, but it's change of a very particular type. Like you mentioned croquet and tennis work. Like tennis is, like the story of the development of modern tennis and non-tennis is, is um, it's kind of somewhat extraordinary. And it's right rooted in this idea of, of gender. Like if you look, people have, the game of real tennis uh, was, was played for centuries and variations of tennis were played. But a new game, was designed in, in 1873, 1874 by a man uh, called Major Walter Clopton Wingfield, a name which you have to say very carefully. But he devised a game for the amusement of his guests at a garden party in the state in Wales. And he called this game uh, Sfaristiki or Lawn Tennis. Uh, that was the title of the kind of the eight-page rule book which he produced. And real, Lawn Tennis is the name that took on rather than the Greek uh, Sfaristiki. And immediately, women were involved in playing on these courts with men and these, these as courts were laid out, tennis courts took off in the grounds of landed estates across Britain and Ireland. Ireland was right at the heart of this. The Irish tennis championships by the end of the 1870s were a major part of the Irish sporting world and the social scene of Britain and Ireland. Huge numbers came over yeah. and Irish players went and competed in Wimbledon and then on to New York and you had Irish winners of Wimbledon and you had Irish women, winners of the New York um, or the American, the, the, the US Opens. And what this was, was an interconnected world of elite society. And of course, tennis fitted perfectly into the sociability because what a great way it was perceived to, for men to meet women and women to meet men and on the tennis court and play each other. And, you know, you, you get to hang out with them in sporting exercise, you get to share a space and it's all nicely chaperoned. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's almost sport as courtship. It's a ritual in which... Um, in which upper class women and people of means are involved in. But then through the late 1870s into the 1880s, you get the suburbanization of that and the building of suburban tennis clubs where the middle classes can imitate what's happening by the elites by playing these games in, in they play tennis and croquet clubs come together. Mm. Uh, they're, they're the one space where they play their games and they play them every weekend. And to be a member of a tennis club in a particular area is to denote a very particular sense of privilege uh, around you. And that applies to rural towns such as Enniscorthy, just as it does to the Fitzwilliam Club in, in, in Dublin. Uh, to this day, the media is playing catch up in how it covers women's sports. Even just a couple of weeks ago, Clina Foley had a piece in the Sunday Independent about the first international women's football match in the country. It was a yeah. team against a team from the UK. And they had celebrated the 50th anniversary two years prematurely. They had uh, been shown to the crowd at an Irish international match two years ago. It turns out the actual 50th anniversary was this year and it was only clocked when someone realised that was the year Dana won the Eurovision Song Contest. So we were two years early. It gives an indication of how little documentation there is of something like that, you know, an international uh, match. So... I'm even scared to ask what the initial reaction in the press was early 20th century and beyond. Cruel and brutal and sneering and yeah. um, exactly what you would expect it to be. And it persisted for a long time, the jokes around hockey legs, around women's ineptitude. Women were basically denounced, belittled, trivialised when they, when they went to play sport. And I want to read you um, uh, two lines from a report of an athletics meeting in London from 1919. So this is not the 1870s or 1880s. This is 50 years into our modern sporting revolution and more. And it's an athletics report from London, uh, the, the thriving metropolis of the greatest empire the world had ever known. And the report in the London paper said, athletics meetings always attract a large number of women. 
perhaps it is because of the gay colours of the runners, because perhaps it is because of the youth of the runners and their splendid physical condition. Whatever the reason, women come in their thousands and bring brightness and colour to the scene, even if their appreciation of the sport is not particularly intelligent. Oh. So this is, this is a world yeah. that is profoundly male and retained so. And cartoons in newspapers such as Punch laid this, laid this out. And you have, you have women then, they, you begin to accept your place in the world. I was just going to say, that's a powerful thing to try and overcome when you're reading words like that. And that is the accepted wisdom. Even if you feel differently, I can only imagine how difficult it is to step out beyond all that. And it, it's just, it's, it's, and that's just one illustration sure. of the, of the type of sentiment that was repeated year after year. And it's, um, it was just, it became the norm that sport was a manly thing and that it was something that men did and women could watch, fine, welcome to watch. But anyway, but really, do we really want them on Saturday afternoons? Do we construct a world where men go and go to the terraces like the Lowry painting of, of, of flat-capped men on the terraces and watching English soccer on Saturday afternoons replicated here? Yeah. Who's involved in the officerships of, of clubs? And the whole world that is created and constructed was profoundly male. What about something, if we're, if we're trying to get a sense of where we are globally, what about something like the Olympics? How, how late or early to the party were they? Okay, so I think it's important to, um, to declare prejudice when it comes uh, to any history that you write or you reveal. I, I, would be, I, would, I, would, I would be utterly opposed to much that the Olympics is supposed to stand for. I think it's a cesspit of hypocrisy and um and it's discrimination against women revealed itself year after year games after games decade after decade um and you know the, the coubertin french anglophile who founded the games um used to say is famously trumpeted that, that phrase of the important thing is not winning it's it's uh, it's taking part but he was only talking about men um as regards women his general views were expounded when he said such things as the eternal role of woman in this world is to be a companion to the male and mother of the family and she should be educated towards uh, fun those functions. And he, he did not plan to include women in the early Olympic Games. He argued that women's sport was against the laws of nature and said that the Games must be reserved for men for the solemn and periodic exaltation of male athleticism mm. with female applause as a reward. And there were no women competing so in, in the first Olympic him, Games. He's of, his, he's of his time there. I mean, we have to Oh, be, absolutely. You know, so that, it's not like it was standing out as some kind of a, a beacon of patriarchal hate. I mean, that, that's, that sounds like it chimes in with everything else. Well, he is a beacon of patriarchal hate. He's just one of many beacons of, of, sure. of patriarchal hate when it comes uh, come of these things. And he, he said that women's first inclusion in the Games will be impractical, uninteresting, unesthetic, and incorrect. And even after women, this is where it gets interesting though, Joe, and this is where I think your, your, your point is a fair one, um, but I think it loses its strength when you look at as late as 1935, to Cooperton was not for turning. He wrote, I personally am against the participation of women in public competition. At the Olympics, the primary role should be like the ancient tournaments, the crowding, the crowning of victors with laurels. So he, and he, he wasn't alone in all this. He, he, dug, right. in. he, he dug in. He like dug in. And his successor, uh, a, a brilliantly named American called Avery Bundage, um, said that 
1949, women's events should be confined to those appropriate for women, such as swimming, tennis, figure skating and fencing, but certainly not shot putting. So if you look at the numbers of women who were involved in the Olympic Games in these years, it's really, really interesting. Mm. Um, the, the first woman to win an Olympic event, event was a tennis singles match in 1900, was a woman, an English woman called Charlotte Cooper. But women's participation in the Games was to remain small and symbolic and restrict to sports like swimming and and diving. And only in 1928 were track and field events allowed for women and only five events were there. And the longest that women were allowed to run in 1928 was 800 metres. And that was deemed to be so distressing to see towards the end that the distance was not run again until 1960. And by 1960, women were only taking part in 44 out of the 150 events uh, at, the, at the Summer Games that year. And like, it, let's look at this really simply in terms of percentage. So zero percentage of women in, in 1896. The eve of the First World War in 1912, 2.24% of competitors are, are women. By 1964, it's only 13% of competitors are women. And as late as 1980, mm. it's only 20%. 20% in 1980? 1980. That's how slowly things began to change during, during, uh, during, these period, dur- during this period. Okay. It does reflect a quickening of change in the last, you know, we, we are in the midst of oh, yeah. change at the moment in that context. Well, you're looking at, this is, this is the story of the women's sporting revolution is really the story of the last 50 years, which is, again, utterly tied in to the changing yeah. place of women in society. It's, 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 uh, it's, it's, a, it's a thing that is, it's, of, it's very much in the making. Yes, okay. We should almost talk about that at another stage, like the last 40, 50 years. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Because I didn't realise about the EEC in the 1970s and participation for all. I didn't know what the genesis of the big change was in many ways. Well, perhaps, um, I, think, I think if we talk next week about sport and war, Okay. Uh, and, and then I think the following week it will be more or less sport and independent Ireland. But the last, the last, then the last class or whatever you want to call it, um, will be about sport for all okay. of the last fifty years. So uh, round up this lecture then on women in sport, gender and sport. Um, I suppose I'd make maybe eight or ten key points, central points on it. Number one, sport reflected um, wider society and how women were treated. Mm. That's point number one. Number two, science affected women's attitude uh, or attitudes to women's participation in sport from the the very beginning. Number three, reducing the explanation of women's social behaviour and cultural behaviour to the level of biology made it much more difficult for feminists and people who believed in this, in gender equality, to reverse discrimination. It's much easier to change something that was just a social convention than something apparently rooted in science. Number four, women starting to play sport was a breakthrough of contradiction. So women played certain sports in a certain way, but did not have full access to the sporting world. I think the fifth point to make is that women did play team games, but they played them in a different way to boys. Number six is that working class women were largely excluded from the sporting world that was being constructed. It was driven by upper class women and by middle class women. Number seven, there was rampant institutional discrimination. We have talked about the Olympics there, but you can pick all the modern sporting organizations and, and look at how women have been treated as an example there. Number eight, women's sporting activity was mocked by men. It was mocked privately 
and it was mocked publicly and repeatedly so. And the, within all this, I suppose, is the last point I'd make is that, is that there's a kind of a paradox here. As the century, 20th century went on, we were able to play more sport than ever before. But sport also tended to serve and reinforce traditional ideas on gender until you come to the 1970s and the 1980s. Okay. Very good. Paul Rouse, we will talk next week. Next week, If you're just tuning in and catching the end of this, you can podcast all of these chats. There is a full section of the History and Sport Lectures in the highlight section on the Off The Ball Network. Go to offtheball.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Paul, we'll talk next week. Thanks so much. Thanks, William Joe.